Jude 24 through 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Father God, we come to you, and that is our desire, that all glory and honor would go to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I pray that this morning as we examine your word, that uh, our hearts would uh, be drawn to worship you, that our minds would uh, be drawn in awe at the splendor of the doctrine. And Father, that our lives would live it out. Help us to uh, not only uh, love your word and uh, uh, appreciate and understand your word, but to be obeyers of your word as well. I pray that you anoint my lips, enable me to preach it faithfully, and enable each one of us to live it out. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. This is the third sermon on the uh, Trinity, and uh, today I'm going to be looking at the second person of the Trinity, the Eternal Son. Lord willing, next week we'll look at the Holy Spirit, and then, Lord willing, we'll uh, take one more Sunday, maybe more, depending on how far we get, in drawing other applications together that these three sermons were not able to achieve. But I do want to quickly review where we've been, especially the first um, sermon, which laid the, fr- uh, the framework of what the Trinity was all about. We've seen that God is one God. True Christianity is monotheistic. We only believe in one God. Secondly, we have seen that God is three persons. True Christianity has rejected modalism. Uh, modalism teaches that... Uh, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the same person. They're all one person. They just, um, you know, are change artists. They um, appear in different ways at different times, but we looked at a number of scriptures indicate that's absolutely impossible because Father talks to Spirit and talks to Son, and, and they appear at the same time, like in the baptism of Christ. And so uh, modalism is to be rejected. Third, we've seen that each person is not simply a part of God. Don't think of the Father as a third of God and the Son as another third and the Spirit as the third third. No, each one is fully God, fully God. Fourth, we saw that if Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are fully God and if they're equal in power and glory and in all of the divine attributes, then that means that the differences that exist between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit cannot relate to their divine nature because the divine nature is what they have in common. They're each fully God. Uh, the divine attributes of omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, aseity, doesn't matter what attribute lo- you look at, the Father has them equally with the Spirit and with the, the, the Son. And so the important point here is that there is no subordination of nature. Uh, that's a heresy. Subordination is a, of nature is a heresy. Uh, fifth, we saw that that means that the differences between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit relate to their roles and relationships, okay? The Father is not the Son. He is not the Spirit. And uh, he has roles that are unique to his Father nature. We looked at the uh, huge implications of this for our relationships. Sixth, we saw that though there is no subordination of divine nature, in other words, they're all equally God, there is a subordination of roles or relationships. There is a submission. There is an inequality of roles and relationships between 
uh, Father, Son, and uh, Holy Spirit. And this corrects a faulty notion that many modern Americans have that you have to be equal in role or you're inferior in every way. And that's simply not true. That is an attack on the Trinity because the Trinity is not equal in role and yet they're fully equal in terms of divine nature. And that brings us then to last week when we began to look at what it is that makes the Father uh, different from the Son. There's no way that I'm going to even try to review last week's. There were just far too many points. You'll just have to listen to that uh, yourself. But we saw that God's fatherhood models our fatherhood. His care models our care. His authority is a pattern for our authority. Now today I want to look at these relationships from the perspective of the Son who is the second person of the Trinity, but he's the first person who is under authority. And I thought I'd begin with the authority issue because I think this highlights rather than diminishes the love that Father has toward Son and that the Son has toward the Father. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says, But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Christ has a head just as a woman in the marriage has a head. What's so beautiful about this analogy is it's comparing one loving, devoted, uh, joyful marriage uh, relationship, that of father to son, to another loving, joyful a devoted relationship, that of the husband to the wife and of the wife uh, to the, the husband. And in doing so, it immediately corrects all kinds of faulty notions that people have had of what it means to be under authority. It does not mean that you have no authority yourself. It does not mean that you're unloved. It does not mean that you're inferior. It does not mean that you have uh, any insignificance. Quite the opposite. Scripture links those things together in a tight way. Now, I do want to go on to a, a rabbit trail this morning that may help to answer a question that I'm sure some of you have had rattling around in your heads. And the question is this, if the father <clears throat> models fatherhood and if the son models sonship, is there a model for a wife? And there were a number of early uh, church fathers like uh, Jerome and um, Origen, and uh, Methodius who said that <clears throat> even though God was not a female and even though they insisted any more than God is a male they would say and even though God does not have a wife in the way in which we think of having a wife yet still they insisted that Eve was the faint image of the spirit the early Nazarenes said the same thing so let me just read this quote up there the innocent an unbegotten Adam, being the type and resemblance of God the Father Almighty, who was uncaused and the cause of all, his begotten son, Seth, <clears throat> shadowing forth the image of the begotten Son and Word of God, whilst Eve that proceedeth forth from Adam. And what he's saying there is they took, God took the rib out of Adam, right? And so just as Eve proceeded out of Adam, the Spirit proceeds forth from the Son. So he says, whilst Eve that proceedeth forth from Adam signifies the person and procession of the Holy Spirit. Now, I do have to admit that there is a certain neatness to this analogy, and while I think in some places it will push the Scriptures further than the Scriptures could go, there are at least some of the comparisons that those early fathers made that are, are correct. Now, let's draw out Methodius's parallel. Just as God the Father never submits to the Son or to the Spirit, uh, they would say it would be inappropriate in the scriptures for the husband to be in a role of submission to the wife or to the son. 
Secondly, both sons and wives find themselves during different seasons of their life to be both in authority as well as under authority, and this imitates the relationships of the Son and the Holy Spirit. For example, just as a son is under a mother's authority until he gets married, at which time he leaves his father and his mother and he's joined to his wife, during Christ's earthly life, Jesus was totally under the authority of the Holy Spirit. Now, interestingly, Jesus recognizes this was not true prior to the incarnation, and it would not be true after the glorification, but it was true during his earthly life. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was brought up and instructed by the Holy Spirit. He was under his influence. He was empowered by the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit. Mark 1.12 uses very strong language saying the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And so it could be claimed that this is analogous to a son who was under a mother's authority growing up, and just as the glorified son is not under the Spirit after his ascension, he's not under the authority of the Spirit, a married son is no longer under the authority of the mother. Now the analogy actually does break down a little bit there because you're having the same people applying to two different generations. But pushing the analogy further to explain how it is that the glorified Son then has authority over the Spirit and sends the Spirit, here is the explanation. Now, there was a first explanation from Adam to Eve, but now it's in a mother-son relationship. When a mother loses her husband, she often comes under the protection and the authority of the firstborn and his family. As a man, Jesus modeled this by taking care of his mother. And uh, at the cross, he hands over his mother and he says, I want you now to be taking care of my mother to the Apostle John. And uh, so John uh, took that position. But the son now has authority over the spirit after his glorification while honoring the spirit fully. And so there's an analogy there. But the son is no longer under the spirit's control after the ascension. Uh, Jerome strengthens this by saying that uh, the Old Testament Hebrew uh, frequently, well, he, he just said it used it. I say it frequently uses the feminine uh, with the uh, Holy Spirit. There are times where it uses the masculine, and I think there's a good reason for the, the switch. Um, Origen called the Spirit the mother of Jesus. Others point out that the Spirit creates. Uh, the Spirit brooded over the waters of creation. Uh, just like a mother hen broods over uh, her chicks. Uh, Jesus said, uh, we must be born of the Spirit. Now, that's about the strongest case that I can make for that theory that uh, was there. And what are we to think of this? Now, I'm inclined to believe, okay, in terms of analogies, there are some helpful things that could be drawn uh, from that. I think as an illustration, it can be very uh, useful, especially if you just restrict it to Adam and Eve and that first generation, you know, with Seth. But let me give you four cautions. First of all, if God had wanted to say that motherhood was an essential characteristics of, of the Trinity, he could have very easily called the Spirit mother. But he does not anywhere in the Scripture. In fact, some of the descriptions of the Holy Spirit are very militaristic, are quite contrary to uh, the, 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 the symbol. Analogies, yes. Literal motherhood, no. He's never called motherhood. Mother. In fact, in John's chapters 14 through 16, Jesus goes out of his way to indicate something different because in the Greek, there's a neuter that is used, uh, like it. In fact, the King James translates it as it, uh, close to the, the Greek. 
But in chapters 14 through 16, Jesus uses a masculine pronoun with a neuter um, uh, spirit. The word spirit is in the neuter. Uh, in Greek and Hebrew, every word has it's either masculine, feminine, or neuter. And so that's not normal Greek. What Jesus is doing, he's going out of his way to show that when it, when it says whom or who, any, any kind of a reference like that in those chapters, it's a masculine that's used. And so I think Christ is making a specific point, and we're going to be seeing what that point is in, in a little bit. So that's the first caution. He is not called mother. Uh, he's not called she anywhere in the Scripture. And I think we're going beyond the Scripture if we press the analogy too far. Second, every human relationship can be explained entirely without resorting to that analogy. For example, if uh, you look back at that scripture that I read, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, you'll see that it is the son's submission to the father that Paul uses to teach the wife's submission to her husband, right? It's, it's Jesus. Jesus stands as a model not only as husband because he is the husband of the church, but he also stands as a model for what it means to be a wife because he stood in submission to the father. And so the issue is, uh, the role relationships, not the sexuality. Can you see that? It's the roles, not the sexuality that he is uh, driving at. In fact, some people in their different relationships on their job, in their family, and in other places are imitating, modeling, as it were, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all at the same time, but to different people. Third, Paul could have chosen the spirit here and elsewhere to illustrate the wife's submission, but he did not. And I think part of the reason is that the Trinity stands as a model for every social relationship in the civil realm, uh, in business, in family, in the church. And it would, it would bring confusion in if there was a rigid application just to, uh, just to the family. And so most modern Orthodox theologians believe inserting female sexuality into the Trinity not only adds to the scripture, but it's not necessary, and it could bring confusion when you're uh, applying it to other social relationships. And then fourth, when the New Testament generally uses the neuter for the spirit, but not always, sometimes it's the masculine, and when the Old Testament generally uses the feminine for the Holy Spirit, if you look at the context, you'll see the reason for that is that it's talking about... Um, the, um, the spirit's relationships of being under authority. And when it uses the masculine for the spirit, it's in contexts that deal with being in authority over something. So male language is just an analogy. When the New Testament uses neuter, it's not saying God is asexual. In the Old Testament, he has uh, got a, 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 a female sexuality any more than God is a male. He is not a male and he does not have a husband. It's an analogy. The reason that the scripture uses male language for God is to show the role relationships of authority. And that's to just do away, eliminate with the confusion. And so the reason feminine is used in neuter is the exact opposite to show the spirit as being under authority. And so while certain aspects of the analogy are true, I think it's important that we not press them too far. She is not, uh, he is not a she. <laughs> And the Holy Spirit is, is not a mother or a wife. Um, and I thought I really needed to go down that rabbit trail because some of you have been puzzling about this. What is the analogy? And I think, yes, there is an analogy of the wife being, being like Eve, 
but just don't push it uh, too far. Now, some of you who have read a lot, like Travis, uh, have run across another theory that's uh, quite distinct by Karl Barth, that he says that the image of God is male and female in terms of marriage. And uh, there's a great article that just devastates that. There's actually quite a number of books that have attacked that view. Uh, but uh, Images of the Spirit by Meredith Klein does a great job of trashing that. I'm not even going to get into that issue. Uh, just to give you a hint, for him, an individual does not image God. And that's totally contrary to the Scripture. He says it's only in a marriage that you're the image of God. And the Scripture says, no, when you murder uh, a, a single individual, you have destroyed the image of God. And so uh, I don't think that there's a, a basis for that. So that's the end of the rabbit trail. Let's quickly examine some of the scriptures that show the son's relationship to father and spirit. And I'm going to try to pick scriptures I haven't dealt with before so that we're not covering the same territory. John 15, 9 through 11 completely destroys the idea that so many people have put forward that if somebody is under the authority of another, it destroys the love relationship and totally removes joy from that relationship. And Jesus says, no, it's the exact opposite. Let me read that. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. This passage shows that the highest love that it is possible to have, the love of God the Father for God the Son, is totally compatible with Jesus being under the Father's authority and, um, and, and obeying the commandments of the Father. Totally compatible. Secondly, it not only shows compatibility, it shows this is really the very definition of love. It is only in the keeping of the Father's commandments that Jesus was showing forth his love so that others could see that. Let me read you a verse from a previous chapter that expresses this even more strongly. John 14, 31 says, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. So here's the question. How can people tell that you love your head, that you love your authority? And uh, it, you could say, well, because I say I love you. It's my words, it's my, it's my hugs, it's my kisses. But Jesus says that his obedience to the Father was what enabled the world to be able to see that he loved the Father. And this is so backwards to modern thinking. We have taken obey out of our marriage vows. We think, oh, that's not compatible with love. We have taken obedience out of the relationship of a teacher to his children. And what's happened in the schools is it's become very child-centered relationships. Uh, many times parents uh, will... Uh, try to relate their ch to their children as buddies, they will lower themselves to the basis of equals in the way in which they talk, in the way in which they interact with their children. Why do they do it? Because they want their children to love them. And sure, their children have a blast growing up, but the exact opposite so frequently happens. These children end up, when they're growing up, treating the parents as less than equals. And the parents are mystified. I've done everything. I've sacrificed. I've bent over backwards. And what God is saying is that true love is developed in the relationship of authority and honor and obedience. And he says, if you want to have that in your relationships, you need to make sure that you have this authority, honor, respect, and obedience. That is where love will flourish. 
That is where it, is, it will develop. This is so counterintuitive to our thinking today that obedience shows, uh, you know, if I give commandments to my children, that's exactly what he's saying. The father is saying, by giving commandments to my children, to my son, I love my son. And the son is saying, by obeying the commandments, I love it. In modern culture, we just think the opposite. And our minds have been so framed by American thinking that we have a hard time buying into this. And so that's why we're spending a little bit more time uh, on this uh, situation. The passage goes even further. It says, such an authority relationship as the father has to the son is not only compatible with love, it is compatible with joy. Let me read the passage again. As the father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. And so he's saying this is not just compatible with joy. He is saying that this is the pathway in which the greatest joy possible to have is achieved. Jesus says it's precisely in obedience. Now, we tend to just dismiss the relationships between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We say, okay, well, they're perfect, but I can't relate to that. You know, we've got imperfect relationships, so I'm excused for not following this. Well, certainly, we're never going to be able to be perfect in imitating the Father, but Jesus wants us to imitate Him in this so that our joy might be full. If you want joy, it needs to be in the way of submission. Uh, Satan is the great deceiver. He tries to get us to believe the exact opposite. He says it's in disobedience you're going to have joy. You know, it's going to be miserable if you submit yourself to your husband or you submit yourself to your children. Uh, in 1 John it says it's in holiness that our cup of joy is full to overflowing. What does Satan say? No, it's when you sin that you're going to have your cup of joy full to overflowing. Uh, people who are hungry for love, they're desperate for the affection of their parents, what does Satan do? He tries to divert them into a relationship of egalitarianism, and it's never going to satisfy that deep desire. To overthrow God's authority structures is the surest way to have a loveless, joyless, burned-out life. I think this is a remarkable passage. I think it needs to be memorized by every Christian because I think it is the solution to the broken marriages and the bitter children and the joyless service that so many people have. Now, let's ask another question. How radical was Christ's obedience and submission? And the answer was, it was total. In fact, one author said it was unbelievable, absolutely unbelievable. In John 5.30, Jesus says, I can of myself do nothing. Wow, that's pretty radical. Jesus said, I do nothing on my own authority. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. John 8, 28 through 29. So let me ask you children. Do you make it your goal, children, to do everything you do to seek to please your parents? Not just obey them. Jesus said grudging obedience doesn't cut it. Obedience is important. But do you do everything you do in a way that you're always trying to please your parents? That's what Jesus said he did. He's our model for that. And I can immediately imagine the, the, the objections that come up in your head. Your objections are, yeah, but my dad's a sinner who always is asking me to do things that aren't fun to do, you know. Jesus had a perfect father. 
He would never have unreasonable expectations for his children. My dad is so unreasonable. My mom is so unreasonable in his expectations and her expectations for me. And it's true. Uh, God the Father is not sinful. He's not a hypocrite. He doesn't have all of the foibles that we parents do. But let me assure you something, children. God the Father expected far more of Jesus than any one of your parents have ever expected of you. And he entered into it with love, and he entered into it with joyfulness. In fact, I doubt any unreasonable request that your parents have made of you has come anywhere close to how it appears to be unreasonable of the Father's expectations of the Son. Jesus sweated great drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he pleaded with the Father, but he still was very uh, 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 right in the way in which he... Uh, sought to please the Father even in that request. Think of the poverty that Jesus was born into. Think of the insults that he received. Mary, his mother, when uh, she was so pregnant by the time that she got married that Joseph took her to himself, that everybody knew uh, that something different was up. And so there were, he was ridiculed with words like these. Where is your father? John 8, verse 19 which is a Hebrew idiom that's used all throughout the Middle East. It was used in Ethiopia when we were growing up, which means you bastard. Whereas your father means you don't have a father. Later on in the chapter, they repeat it. They say, we were not born of fornication, implying that he was. So his whole life is characterized by what Acts 8.33 speaks of as his humiliation. Um, Philippians 2.8 says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Now, that's the worst death that any person could experience. There isn't any father in this congregation that has had that kind of an expectation of you, that's been that far in his expectations. And yet of that death, Jesus said, This command I have received from my father. Now, what's odd about that statement is that it's, stated in connection with the father's love for the son now th to me this is remarkable the very request of the son i want you to die for my people was an expression of the father's love for the son let me read you the whole context this has puzzled so many people as the father knows me even so i know the father and i lay down my life for the sheep and other sheep i have which are not of this fold them also i must bring and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore, my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. So he wasn't forced into this. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Now, the question that might pop into your heads is, but is that really an expression of a father's love for his son? What kind of a father would ever ask his son to die and not only ask his son to die, but pour out his wrath upon his son so that his people could be saved? Uh, we can understand how that shows love to the world. God so loved the world that he gave his son, but is that love for the son? And that's a puzzle that some people have really struggled through. And the answer, amazingly, is that it shows incredibly sacrificial love. The goal of the father was to honor the son with an awesome mission. He was in effect saying, son, I want to give you a mission that will show forth your glory in a way that nothing else could possibly do. And um, I'm going to honor you with this mission. 
the father wanted to honor the son by giving it to people. And actually, when you look at the church of Jesus Christ, that ought to blow your mind by itself. You, you think, is it really an honor for Jesus to go through all of that to receive a people? But he says it is. He says it is. It was an honor for the son to receive you from the father. The father was letting the son ask of him and he would give to him the nations as an, an inheritance. It was an honor that the son desired to take on and it was an honor that the father desired to give. They were of one mind on this, but it cost them both dearly. It cost the father dearly to pour out his wrath upon the son because the son was dearly beloved. Uh, he was well pleased with his son and it, it must have been incredible tension within the father. It cost the son dearly uh, to be separated from the father's love. And yet it was so worth it that the son says this was a privilege that he took upon himself. In fact, the son says, thank you, father, for this honor. Thank you for your love. It's precisely in that context that he says the father's love was highlighted. The logic that Philippians 2 continues with in the next verse is the incredible honor that the father showed to Christ because of his death. It says, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Now, here is the important point. It was in seeing the goal of the Father and seeing the motive of the Father that made it all worthwhile to the Son. Let me repeat that. It was in seeing the goal of the Father and the motive of the Father that made it all worthwhile to the Son. In other words, he saw the reason for doing this. Now, let me just uh, apply this to ourselves and our relationships to our children. When we call our children to make what seems to them to be unreasonable sacrifices, you, you know, we just seem so unreasonable to them, it may help them if you explain to them what your purpose in this is that you really mean this for their best interest. Um, maybe what your goal is that you're trying to protect them from something they don't recognize as a danger, or that you're trying to prepare them for something that they didn't even realize they needed to be prepared for. You're trying to uh, strengthen them in their sanctification. Let me just give you an illustration. Uh, let, let's say, and we'll, I'll just take an illustration from our own life. Let's say that... Um, your, your child has a friend and that friend has been cursing and been doing different things that are having a bad impact on your child. And you say to your son, uh, son, you cannot play with that uh, neighbor any longer. And the son just thinks this is unreasonable because he's been having a blast playing with that son. But you give to this son the reason, you know, the way that that boy curses. I'm seeing how it's impacting you. And I, don't, I love you. I don't want you influenced in a bad direction. The Bible says bad company corrupts good morals. And it may be by saying he can no longer play with you that it'll bring him to repentance. In fact, we had exactly something like this happen where eventually that child, he kept wanting. We say, no, the way you curse and the way you act and we spelled out the things, you can't play with our son because you've been a bad influence on him. And he repented. He completely changed as a result of that. But it's in the seeing of the why that can make a child realize that what previously seemed to be an unreasonable expectation is now actually the expression of the father's love. Can you see that? Let me explain uh, uh, some words here. Knowledge is knowing what to do. 
Wisdom is knowing how to do it. Understanding is knowing why you do it. Okay? Knowledge is knowing what to do. Wisdom is knowing how to do it. Understanding is saying, why in the world do we have to do this? Oh, okay, now I see why we do this. Well, the Spirit gave Jesus all three of those plus more right from the time he was young and on up. In Isaiah chapter 11, it says of the Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And so the Spirit gave Jesus the knowledge of what he was supposed to do. He absolutely had to have that. And he gave him the spirit of wisdom so that he would know how to do it. But he also gave him the spirit of understanding so that he would understand why it is he was doing the things that he was involved in. Now, we have children, and every one of our children, right from the time they're very young, keep asking questions. Why is this? And why is that? And sometimes those why questions can come on so fast and furious, we sometimes get frustrated. But answering the why, I think, is what gives the child a motivation to do something. Now, sometimes a why is simply rebellion. You know, I've got a whole list of questions that are ungodly questions that we need to teach our children not to ask. But sometimes the why, uh, you know, is is, is just dragging your toes. I really don't want to do it, but they're not wanting to outright say, I'm not going to do it. They say, why? Why do I have to do this? But many times the why is simply saying, I don't understand. And as soon as you give them the understanding, it can give them an enthusiasm and a desire to really be involved in what previously seemed like an awkward, unreasonable request of them. And so don't underestimate or ignore this whole aspect of giving your children understanding. Then that verse says that the Spirit gave to him the fear of the Lord so that he would always do it in a way that respected his position as being one under authority. And I think Christ's appeal to God is a good example of this request, I mean, this respect. Jesus prayed, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, that is an appeal that any parent would think is respectful. It's not threatening at all. It honors the parent. In fact, the parents are going to see that as an expression of the child's love. Even if the answer is no, both will feel loved and appreciated. But I want you to notice a couple of other things about that passage. Notice that Jesus didn't have to like what he was doing in order to love the Father and to have joy in the doing of that action. Notice that he didn't have to like what he was doing in order to have a sweet disposition in the way in which he went about doing what he was doing. He didn't like the task. And let me tell you, it's not just children who have tasks that they don't like to do. All of us have tasks that we don't like to do, right? And the way in which we do it ought not to be with a glummy expression on our, on our face. Sometimes there are tears, yes, but if they can see, at least through our words, our desire is to please our parents. Our desire is to please the one who is in authority. Uh, it's going to truly work out together for our good. In fact, I think this is a model of how children can appeal to the decision of, of a parent that they think is maybe unreasonable. Notice that he begins with, if it is your will, and he ended with, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I think this is a tremendous challenge to our, our relationships. There's an, another scripture popped into my head, you know, about Jesus understanding the reason why. It says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And many a child, if they understand the why, for the joy that is set before them will endure this present difficult circumstance that they are going through. 
How do you children respond to the requests that are painful to you? Make sure you do it in a way that's gracious, that honors the person that you are appealing to. And if you have been very reluctant and grumbling, then you need to repent to God and you need to repent to your parents as well. John 5.30 says, I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. And so children, I would beseech you, don't make life difficult for your parents, you know, to rule over you. Make it a delight for them when they give you responsibilities to do. You know, some, some children, they do it, but it's always through arguing. It's always through reluctance. It's not a, an energetic, yes, Lord, I want to do your will. And so first, Jesus obeyed perfectly. Secondly, he represented his father perfectly. John 12, 49 through 50. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command what I should say and what I should speak. For whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. He said, I honor my Father. So again, how do you represent the family name? The people that you talk to, do they think poorly of the family name because of what you say and how you say it and what you do? We need to make sure as children, as wives, as husbands, all of us need to make sure we are representing the family name in a way which brings glory to that name. Third, think of how the Son depended upon the Spirit. Now, an entire book could be written on this. I'm going to be very brief because next week we're going to be talking about the, the, the role relationships of the Spirit. But uh, there is one thing I do want to bring up today. And the first thing is that, that needs to be said is that the Son did not really need the Holy Spirit to be able to accomplish the things that he was doing as Messiah because God the Son is omnipotent. He, he could have done any of the things, the miracles, he could have done anything that Jesus did just as the Son, but he chose not to do that. He chose to do everything that Jesus did while he was here on earth as a role model of what it means to be the true humanity, as a role model of what it means to depend upon the Holy Spirit. At the very moment that he was in the womb, Jesus, according to the Scripture, was upholding all things by the word of his power. Uh, he had all power, but God chose uh, him, for himself as incarnated Messiah to model how humanity can work. Not only did he submit to the Spirit, but he depended upon the Spirit for everything. Now, we already read a Scripture that shows he depended on the Spirit for knowledge, wisdom, understanding, might, and fear. So he didn't use his omniscience. God the Son was omniscient, right? He did not use his omniscience while he was here on earth. Luke 2, 52 says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. If he increased in wisdom, he was not omniscient. At least he was not expressing his omniscience there. As God the Son, right at that moment, he knew all things, but in terms of his personhood and Messiah on the earth, he did not depend on that. He depended on the Holy Spirit just as we must. Now, this explains why Mark 13, 32 says Jesus doesn't know some things while he was here on earth. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, Arius used that to try to prove that Jesus was not God. If he was God, he would have been uh, omniscient, he, he, he said. But that's totally misunderstanding the purpose of Christ living his life in his perfect obedience. He was to do it as a human. He was to go through the temptations that we go through. He had to depend upon the Spirit and the way in which we depend upon uh, the Spirit. 
Now, after the ascension, it says of Jesus, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He knows now the time of his second coming, but he didn't then when he was here there on earth. Um, Luke 4, 1. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days of the devil. After 40 days, it says, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Luke 4, uh, 14. Now, some people think that, um, and remember Isaiah 11 talked about the spirit of might coming upon him. Some people think that the miracles Jesus did was to prove that he was God. That did not prove that he was God. The apostles did exactly the same miracles that Jesus did, and that didn't prove they were God. What it proved is that God was working through them, right? And that's what it proved, that Jesus was a man of God. It did not prove uh, his deity, in fact, in John 14, 12, you can look it up sometime. Look it up in context. In context, he says, after my glorification, when I give you the comforter, the Holy Spirit comes upon you, that they would do greater works than Jesus did. That didn't prove that they were divine. It proved that they were depending entirely upon the power of the Spirit. Now, one of the first places that Jesus visited after he was anointed uh, is a, a synagogue where he read from Isaiah 61, 1 through 2. And prophesied that the Messiah would be equipped by the Spirit, empowered for ministry. And in all of those things, 1 Peter 2, verse 21, says that Christ was leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. Now, next week, we're going to be looking at the relationship of authority that Jesus has over the Spirit, the profound ramifications that that has in our lives. We're not going to have time for that today. But let me briefly say that in glorification, the Son returns to his position of authority over the spirit acts 2 33 says of jesus therefore being exalted to the right hand of god and having received from the father the promise of the holy spirit he poured out this which you now see and hear now it shows the order of father son and holy spirit or as jesus words it the holy spirit whom the father will send in my name now i'm going to have more to say about that next week but i do want you to notice something i, I want you to notice in these uh, two scriptures here that there was a clear-cut chain of command. You do not have a situation where any person has to report to more than one person who is equal in authority. So don't be thinking of uh, Father and Jesus, you know, as uh, equal people that the Spirit has to report to, um, uh, the way some people think of it, of the, the Father proceeding, I mean, the Son proceeding from the, uh, the Father and the Son. The buck stops with the Father. He delegates to the Son, who in turn delegates to the Spirit. Now, there was an interesting controversy in, in church history. And in uh, 1054 A.D., there was a split between the East and the Western churches over the Filioqua clause. Filioqua is Latin for and the Son. Now, the early creeds had said that the Spirit proceeds from the Father, which is, is, is exactly true. But later on, the Western church added and from the Son. And that's true as well. But it really wasn't fair. The East was right. You should have had an ecumenical council before you inserted that. That's not fair to now be saying everybody has to say and from the Son when it wasn't part of the ecumenical creeds before. And so I would say the West was right that the Spirit proceeds from Father and Son and that the East was right that the Spirit proceeds in a different way from the Son than He proceeds from the Father. And there are huge ramifications from this. We don't need to get into all of the technical stuff, 
But suffice it to say that the spirit does not proceed in the same way. To use human analogies, it should not be seen as if the spirit has two equal bosses. Um, instead, there's a chain of command, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And even when Jesus was incarnated and the roles were reversed, it was still a clear-cut chain of command. It was Father, Spirit, and to the Son. And it's so important in our relationships. Some of you guys have had uh, job situations where you've had to report to two bosses who are not under each other. They're not related to each other. And it's so frustrating because if you obey this guy's directives, this other guy's going to be mad at you. And it's just a no-win situation. It sets you up for disaster. Uh, when a child is born into an egalitarian home where the buck doesn't stop with mom and it doesn't stop with the dad, it's a, it's a disaster just waiting to happen. This child is going to grow up incredibly insecure, not knowing, you know, what the situation is that that he is living within. Christ gave the ironclad principle, no one can serve two masters. But we saw last week that when there is a delegation and a clear-cut chain of command, those who have authority delegated to them have the same authority as the one who delegated it, right? Let me read that verse, John 5, 23, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. The fact that Jesus is sent shows that Jesus is under authority. But the fact that Jesus gets exactly the same honor as the Father gets shows the principle of true delegation. If you delegate responsibility, make sure you delegate authority as well, just as the Father did. John 5. 25 through 27 says, Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority. You see exactly the same situation between Jesus and the Spirit. Now next week we're going to be seeing that uh, Jesus delegates to the Spirit the authority to regenerate whomever He wills. Just like the wind blows where it wills, the Spirit is sovereign and he can, he can regenerate whom He wills. truly and savingly be able to say Jesus is Lord is impossible apart from the Spirit. Why? Because the Son, the Father and the Son, have delegated that responsibility to the Spirit and they're not going to be doing the work of the Spirit. They're not going to be micromanaging, getting their fingers in there. Okay? Uh, that would just totally mess up leadership line of command. In human relationships, this means that when I am absent, my wife has the same authority that I have in all areas that I have delegated to her. Disobedience to her is disobedience to me. Dishonor of her is dishonor to me. I give her all of the authority she needs to carry out her tasks. And so I don't frustrate her by giving her a responsibility and then failing to back her up when she makes a decision, even if I don't like the decision. If I gave her the responsibility to make that decision, I back her up on that decision. Otherwise, it's not a true delegation of authority. 
she's going to always be second-guessing, wondering, you know, what's going to happen? Have I really got the authority to make this decision or not? <clears throat> so even on simple mundane things like this, the Trinity is a model for our behavior. John 8, 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. Now, if you really understand the principles of delegation, this makes perfect sense because if Jesus is loved by the Father, if He's sent by the Father, if He's represented by the Father, then any action against Christ or lack of action is an action or lack of action against the Father. Any honor of the Son is going to be an honor of the Father and vice versa. And He goes on to say that, If God were your Father, you would love Me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of Myself, but He sent Me. Now, let me quickly end with two more applications that I haven't um, made from the verses we read already. First of all, every one of us should be willing to express and show forth the humility of Jesus. Here he was in the second person of the Godhead, not only being willing to be humbled when he became flesh and all that was involved in being Messiah, but to humble himself to come under the total authority in absolutely everything he did of the Holy Spirit. Now, really, if you've got humility, it shouldn't matter what role you're in, does it? would it? We should all be able to, if we've got the humility, we should be able to be in any role and be satisfied with it. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all show humility in their differing roles and relationships, and we should have the humility to learn from a subordinate. We should have the humility to let them know we are totally dependent upon our subordinates. We appreciate them. We value them. And then uh, another thing that we can marvel at is how beautifully Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work together. Think of how awesome it would be if you had a business that could be run, you know, where everybody's got unified goals, a common uh, mission, the support for one another, the willingness to take on new tasks like Jesus did when He was Messiah, to defer to one another, it would just bring incredible joy to the workplace. Uh, think of how great it would be to have social relationships where every person pulled their own weight. They all played off of the same page. You'd have a symphony, wouldn't you? Everything would be working together. And I think the word unity is feeble in trying to describe the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each one had their part just as instruments in a symphony all have their part, and it produced a beautiful harmony in their relationships. <clears throat> and this is how the church should imitate the Trinity. Don't think of the church as trying to conform everybody to cookie-cutter sameness. Um, no, it's that diversity in unity that shows forth what the Spirit does so well that gives harmony. Christ promised we can experience the fullness of the symphony right here on earth. John 14, 23, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. It's not just the Holy Spirit who indwells us. God makes the richness of his unified yet diverse trinity to indwell us. And so Ephesians 3 speaks in verse 16 of the Father strengthening us with all might by his Spirit in the inner man. And then he says that the Holy Spirit enables Christ to dwell in our hearts, verse 17, so that verse 19 can say, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you, may be able, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is incredible, absolutely incredible. We experience the fullness of the Godhead working within us. It's just awesome. 
uh, the God that we serve. One last application is this. Don't try to draw attention to yourself. Do like Jesus did. Uh, so many people try to praise themselves, brag on themselves, glor glory in themselves, but Jesus was constantly giving glory to others. Now, there's nothing wrong with other people praising you. It's self-praise that the Scripture condemns. Proverbs 27.2 says, Let another man praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. Now, some, some of you children might be thinking, but if I don't mention it, then nobody's going to notice all of the great things I do. You know, I'll never be glorified if I don't glory in me. I just know them. They're not into glorifying other people. But you know what? The cool thing about that is in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if nobody else gives you praise, uh, they've already had their reward. You're going to be laying up rewards in heaven. You're going to have the Father's praise. And so you can glory in the fact, oh, cool, nobody noticed. I'm laying up treasures in heaven, right? <laughs> but he said in John 8:54. If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. And listen, brothers and sisters, if you glorify yourselves, your glory means nothing. Don't brag on yourselves. Don't praise yourself. Don't boast in yourself. The Trinity is not self-focused. Instead, even though everything was in the Father's hands, He shared that with the Son, who in turn shared that with the Spirit, even though all praise and honor and glory rightly goes to the Father because He is the supreme person in the Trinity, yet what is He involved in? He's involved in constantly highlighting and praising and glorifying the Son. And the Son in turn honors the Spirit to such a degree that He says, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit it will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. He was jealous for the Holy Spirit's honor, just as we should be jealous for our wives' honor. We should be jealous for our husbands' honor. We should be jealous for our children's honor. We should be jealous for our parents' honor. So be other-focused. Develop servants' hearts, and you will be like your Lord. Amen. Father God, we thank you for the challenge of your word, and I pray that we would be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of your awesome triune being. Uh, we want to be conformed to his image, and I pray by the grace and the empowering of the Holy Spirit that we would be. In Jesus' name, amen.